Thus, the idol consigns the divine to the measure of a human gaze. Invisible mirror, mark of the invisible. It must be apprehended following its function and evaluated according to the scope of that function. Only then does it become legitimate to ask what the material figure given to the idol by human art represents, what it resembles. The answer is that it represents nothing, but presents a certain low water mark of the divine. It resembles what the human gaze has experienced of the divine. The idol, such as any archaic kauros, obviously does not claim to reproduce any particular god, since the idol offers the only materially visible original of it. But consigned to the stone material is what a gaze, that of the artist as religious man penetrated by God, has seen of the god. The first visible was able to dazzle his gaze, and this is what the artist tries to bring out in his material. He wants to fix in stone, strictly to solidify an ultimate visible, worthy of the point where his gaze froze. Rock, wood, gold, or whatever, tries to occupy with a fixed figure the place marked by the frozen gaze. Terrorizing as much as ravishing, the emotion that froze the gaze would have to invest the stone as it invested the gaze of the religious artist. Thus, the spectator, provided that his attitude become religious, will find in the materially fixed idol the brilliance of the first visible whose splendor freezes the gaze. That his attitude should become religious means that, to the brilliance fixed by the material idol, the scope of his gaze exactly corresponds, and hence his gaze, with that brilliance, will receive the first splendor that might stop, fill, and freeze it. The idol consigns and conserves in its material the brilliance where a gaze froze, in the expectation that other eyes will acknowledge the brilliance of a first visible that freezes them in their ultimate scope. The idol serves as a materially fixed relay between different brilliancies produced by the same first visible. It becomes the concrete history of the god and the memory of it that men do or do not keep. For this very reason, no one, not even a modern of the age of distress, remains sheltered from an idol, be he idolatrous or not. In order for the idol to reach him, it is sufficient that he recognize, fixed upon the face of a statue, the splendid brilliance of the first visible where, one day, his gaze was frozen in its scope. Robert Walser recorded his threat and described this invasion of the divine with quasi-clinical precision in an unforgettable prose poem. Because the idol allows the divine to occur only in man's measure, man can consign the idolatrous experience to art and thus keep it accessible, if not to all and at all times, at least to the worshippers of the god and as long as the gods have not fled. Art no more produces the idol than the idol produces the gaze. The gaze, by freezing, marks the place where the first visible bursts in its splendor. Art attempts, then, to consign materially on a second level, and by what one habitually calls an idol, the brilliance of the god. That only this brilliance should merit the name of idol is proved by necessity. In order to recognize this brilliance on the material face of a corresponding gaze, hence also of a gaze whose aim settles and freezes with such a first visible. In short, the fact that idols do not coincide with their pure and simple statues is proved by the ease with which we desert idolatry. When our gaze takes off from work, visiting a particular temple or museum, to the extent that these visits lack the aim whose expectation could let itself be fulfilled and hence frozen, the signs of stone and color must wait as mute gazes, for some animated eyes to reach them and be dazzled once again by the still-confined brilliance. 
Often we do not have, or no longer have, the means for such a splendid idolatry.